Now, how many of you are more excited to sing that song now that you know which parts to sing? I am. Well, I've got to ask you a very personal question today, and if you know what I'm talking about, you raise your hand. This is audience participation. How many of you know what a fuzz buster is? Raise your hand. A fuzz buster. Come on, a fuzz buster. I'm not going to ask you if you owned a fuzz buster, because then my illustration would feel somewhat condemning. But you know what a fuzz buster is if you don't. In 1968, a disgruntled recipient of a speeding ticket had the brain power to retaliate. A man named Dale Smith created what we know as the radar detector. Now, it was originally called the Fuzz Buster because the police were called the Fuzz. And you didn't want to get caught speeding. And the reason that, uh, or the, the way in which Dale created this was the police department at that time used an X-band frequency. And so he was able, by his genius, to develop a system, a, a piece of technology, that would detect the use of that frequency so that only the police, using that radar gun, would, would emit that frequency. Therefore, when you got close, the fuzz buster would tell you that you're about to get a speeding ticket. Now, if we're honest, the very existence of such a device is a temptation to break the law. Now, we're not talking about an, an amoral thing here. We're talking about a device that says, I'm going to go to the store, I'm going to spend my hard-earned money so that when I speed and break the law, I'm not going to get caught. Now, how many of you had... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to... Today we're going to... <laughs> Thank you, Curtis. You didn't even know what it was. Um, today we're going to talk about Paul's message to the Corinthians, his warning to them about temptation to sin. The fuzz buster, in my opinion, was a temptation to sin. Okay? Because God wants us to follow the laws of the land, right? And I'm guilty, just as much as anyone else, of going somewhere too fast and not paying attention or not caring about the laws of the land. Okay? That's not what we're here to talk about. The existence of such a device says, I'll go pay my hard-earned money so that I can intentionally do this day after day and not face the consequences. Those type of temptations exist all around us in our world. Paul, in his command to the Corinthians, is telling us that the very history of Israel is a warning sign for us as the church to be alerted to the idea that temptations exist and we can fall gravely into sin. And so he is, in a sense, a fuzzbuster for us because he is warning the church, as he does throughout all of his letters, that we need to be aware and that we need to be alerted to the fact that, that temptations to sin are all around they uh, are, uh, as the Bible tells us, traps that exist 
We, we know this in, in different places. I, I can think of situations in former workplaces where if I knew that I got around a certain group of people at work, I was going to get caught in some form of sin. It could have been conversations. It could have been uh, uh, just things that were being done in that, uh, that sphere of people. And so oftentimes, even in that situation, we can avoid the temptation instead of walking headlong into it, facing the difficulty of turning away from the sin itself. Paul tells us that Israel's history is a way to teach us as the church how to be alerted to the sin that exists. Because the sin and the temptation to sin, because it is so prevalent in the world around us, Paul has to remind the church to be alert at all times, including look to the past and see the failures of the people of God that had been handpicked, had been chosen out of all the nations to be His people, had been given all the tools, and yet they failed to follow the law of God. And so Paul will then encourage us as he has, and as we have sang today, that if we want to avoid temptation, the message today is not to be better. The message today is not to pull up your bootstraps, turn over a new leaf, and uh, set out on a, a new journey starting uh, tomorrow morning or this, this evening to be a better person, the challenge is going to be that only when we put our faith and trust in the power of God will He help us escape the temptation. Only He empowers us to do what we need to do. Now last week we looked at and kind of broke down Paul's description of old Israel's failures. The Old Testament failures of Israel where we see them uh, be blessed by a faithful God, a God who gave and gave and, and cared for and loved and guided and protected, and yet they failed Him. They fell into idolatry, they fell into sexual morality, They grumbled and complained with the very open hand of God providing all their needs. So really, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, we really get a picture that just like Israel, we as a people are incapable of escaping the temptation to sin. We're incapable. That's the very doctrine of the depravity of man, is that we cannot escape. Why? Because the Bible teaches that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. 100% of the time, we will not do good. We might do what the world considers good, but we will not do what is good in the eyes of God without a transformation in Christ. That's what we need. And so I want us to be aware of a few things today in regards to temptation. Number one, that temptation is a reality. We have to understand that Paul is talking to the church. These are the Corinthians. These are God-fearing, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people. A, a, A church that Paul established in Corinth 
And he is telling them and he's reminding them, learn from the past because the very failures of Israel are an example for us. They were written for our admonition or our instruction so that we can learn. Well, why will we need to learn about these things? Because temptation is a reality. Sin is a reality. And we at times as Christians need to be reminded of just the simple fact of that. That we are in a spiritual war. We wake up every morning and we must accept the reality that Satan wants to destroy us and he will do whatever it takes to tempt us into sin so that that sin may destroy us. Now there's two aspects of this reality. Number one, the reality of temptation fits in the framework of a finalized war. A finalized war. We must understand that when we think about the temptation to sin, that we as Christians, we belong to the side that's already been victorious in Christ. This is an important lesson for us to understand. We belong to the already victorious spiritual kingdom that has already won the war against sin. Jesus Christ, our Lord, has accomplished all that is necessary in the past to defeat sin once and for all. couple verses, Colossians chapter 1. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We now, belonging to a new kingdom have escaped the old kingdom. That is what Christ does for us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Man, that, that verse in Colossians 2 is, is packed full of amazing truths about what Christ accomplished for us spiritually, but what He finally accomplished in the spiritual battle disarming the rulers and authorities. Notice it doesn't say destroying. He hasn't yet destroyed them, but He has disarmed them. He's embarrassed them. He's already triumphed over them at the cross. The the victory in this war between Christ and evil is finalized. And yet there is a continual battle. Like many wars, you can have the, the call of, of the, the finality of a bat or of a war that is between nations, the finality of it, and yet in one location or another, there is still battles going on, yet not truly understanding that the war is over. If you look through history, you can see such things. And we are a part of a continual battle as the church. The war has been won, but in this time left on the earth, we are still in a battle, and that battle is against sin. The prevalent sin that still remains in this world, 
and that still remains on us in our flesh. That flesh that still craves the evil, as Paul said in chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things, he says, happen to us as examples for us so that we would not, what? Crave evil things as they also craved. He's talking to the church. Because you still have the capacity to crave evil. To love the things of the world. To want those things. And it is a fight and it is a battle. So looking past the failures of Israel, let's go to the failures of Adam and Eve. In this continual battle, we are reminded the very things that Adam and Eve failed in the garden serve as lessons for us on temptation to sin and what not to do. They teach us that Satan wants us to reject the very words of God. To disown them. To say they're not important, that they're not relevant, that they're not needed. That there's a better way to do this type of thing, Lord. And so I will do them that way. It is a declaration of our own sovereignty over the very sovereign God of the universe when we reject His Word. And in rejecting His Word, Satan also wants to reject His creation. He wants us to reject the very creation of God. The very way in which God created and ordained life to exist. That's why Satan laughs and scoffs at the very idea that men want to call themselves women and women want to call themselves men. It's the very disruption of the created order that God has established in this world. And it is a satanic act that we must fight against in this world. And in that created order, also the rejection of how God organized that creation under His authority. So not only do we see the disruption of what God created, where people in the world now are saying, well, God is not the Creator, I'm the Creator. I'll make myself to be whoever I want to be. And on top of that, I reject any order that God has established in the world, particularly the family, and such that might indicate that that the man is the head of the home, that children should fall under submission and, and obedience to their parents. No, we live in a world that says, if you disregard your desires of your children, you can go to jail for it. Matter of fact, this week it was reported, I think it was in California, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's in California that if you disregard a child's desire to transition to the opposite sex, you can go to jail. What? Canada. Canada. So here we are in a place where we are not only saying, God, we reject what you have created, but now we are saying that now parents have to submit to their children or face the government... And it's regulations. It's a continual battle that started with Adam and Eve. Rejecting God's Word, rejecting His creation, and rejecting the organization of that creation under His authority. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians... 
that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Notice that the reality of temptation comes and the victory comes in that reality only when you are finding power and strength in God alone. That resisting temptation has nothing to do with your own inert strength or power. It has to do with the very armor of God, the strength of God, the power of God, to overcome and resist. So it is a finalized war and a continual battle and an imminent consummation. Notice what Paul says in verse 10 or verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Paul is thinking eschatologically here. He's thinking of the last days. He's thinking of the end. Because the instruction that we need to face temptation, it concludes at the end, in the last days, when Christ returns. It reminds us to look forward and have hope in the fact that in the end, Christ will do away with all evil, all sin. Temptation will no longer linger or have any essence or being left, when Christ comes and abolishes it all, it will be through. Sin will be, will be vanquished. Temptation will be no more. This is the victory that we have in the Lord Jesus. And so keeping our eyes fixed in this time frame of being in the last days, in Paul's mind... This last section of history before Christ returns, we are reminded in this passage to endure because Christ is coming again. To keep our mind fixed on Christ because we can overcome temptations to sin. So what is Paul's warning? Number two, Paul gives us a warning The dangers in the Corinthian church was that they had found such Christian liberty in Christ that it had led to their arrogance to grow and sprout forth blossoms. So Paul gives us this chapter 10 verse 12 statement that we hear and think to ourselves. And in the context of the Corinthians, it was all about their Christian liberty. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Well, for the sake of the Corinthians, they had found such overconfidence in what Christ had done that they were walking into the traps that Satan had laid for them. Oh, well, Christ has saved me. I can get back into that old lifestyle. It's not going to bother me. Oh, really? Well, let me tell you right now, brother and sister, that it was bothering other people and it was leading weaker brothers to sin. And Paul was warning them that your overconfidence, Corinth, is leading you to idolatry once again. What we'll see next week 
in the following verses is that the very Corinthians themselves in their overconfidence in Christian liberty were literally going back to the pagan temples and dining at the pagan temples which were society feasts. Just places to go and eat in society with other uh, people in that culture. And because they, they were wearing the, the, the badge and the honor of Christ's liberty, they, re- they failed to realize that they were walking into a trap of idolatry once again. They weren't just walking by, by the pagan feasts. They weren't just waving at people as those people were partaking in the pagan feasts. They were literally going into the restaurant, sitting down and enjoying the celebration of false gods. And so Paul says, Therefore let him who thinks that he stands take heed that he does not fall. So Christian, it is good for us to find hope in the work of Christ on the cross. We do not want to diminish the confidence that we have that what Christ has accomplished is a finished work. We do not want to diminish the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us and and direct us in this world. But we must be careful. We must be careful, as Paul says, that temptation, we are susceptible to it all. To fall into temptation to sin is the pathway to to sin and destruction. And and we must live our lives uh, constantly aware and not overconfident so that we don't let our guard down because in that very moment, that's when we slip into sin. That arrogance is similar to the temptation that David had when he had been victorious as a ruler and as a general. And there he was up on his, uh, his, his upstairs patio deck, probably just reflecting on all the things that God had done. And in that moment, in that moment, Satan had laid a trap for King David in such a way that the overconfidence that he had and what the Lord had done through him led him to take his guard down day by day and fall into one of the greatest sins in David's life that he carried with him throughout his lifetime. So the illustration is simple. We can have confidence in what Christ has done, but do not let your guard down because you can fail. Paul tells us, warns us over and over again of the dangers that we face. That we can have confidence and we can have hope, but that we must be prepared. When we think of Christ in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, we learn that Jesus was even keenly aware of his weaknesses as a human. I mean, think about it. Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. And therefore, it doesn't surprise us that Satan was going to attack him that way. But Jesus was full of the Word of God, speaking the Word of God to Satan in a counterattack to the very enemy and adversary. So Jesus was ready. He was alert and ready. Even in his human weakness and hunger, he was ready for that area of attack. And therefore, we must be ready. 
We must not allow our pride and overconfidence in Christ to blind us of our own weaknesses. Men, you know your weaknesses. Ladies, you know your weaknesses. And you know the areas that those weaknesses are exploited. You know where the dangers are and you should avoid those weaknesses or those areas where your weaknesses are exploited. If it's at nighttime on the internet, go to bed early. If it's in your car or at your workplace where you're tempted to sin, avoid those areas. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We must be radical in dealing with the the idea that sin dishonors a holy God. And so we must be prepared. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16, prepare your minds for action. Continually prepare your minds for action. Continually keep sober in the Spirit, fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, what I love about that passage is not only Peter affirming the hope that we have in Christ, but he says, don't be conformed to your former lusts. Every one of us knows our former lusts. Every one of us knows that area of our lives that we don't talk about at church fellowships, although we probably should, so that we can keep each other accountable. Hey, by the way, this is where I fall. This is where I used to be in my Christian before my life before Christ. And so I need you to help me be accountable in this area because I'm a gossip or I'm a slanderer or I'm an adulterer or I'm a whatever. But the former lusts we know, therefore because we're aware of those and the reality of them, we can avoid them and be prepared. So how do we prepare? Fix our hope on Christ. Know that we are saved, redeemed, forgiven, cleansed, and be alert of the former lusts. That's Paul's warning to us. Number three, he talks about the scope of temptation. The encouragement. Paul's now moving to the encouragement. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Doesn't sound like a very well-articulated sentence, but it means a whole lot. I'll give it to you another way. Solomon said it a different way. There's nothing new under the sun. Your temptation is no different than the temptation of believers 150 or 250 years ago. The church is struggling throughout its existence with the same types of sin because Satan's game book, his playbook, has never changed. And sin has never changed. It is continually the same old story. We just have to overcome it in Christ. When we think about the story of Joseph escaping the allurement of Potiphar's wife, we realize our temptations are very similar to Joseph. We just have maybe a different pursuer. 
Potiphar's wife may not be knocking down your door, but there are other so named people at your workplace or on the internet or at your, uh, uh, in your uh, business, whatever it might be, that is a, a pursuer of you to give up your belief in God's word, forsake the commitments that you have made to the Lord and, and your family. But it's not new. Same old, same old. But this is an encouraging word. One, because no, no temptation has overtaken you, meaning the power of Christ exists, the hope in Christ exists, and it's not uncommon to other Christians. Therefore, we as a community of people can wrap our arms around one another and say, we are in this battle together. We got the same sin. We got the same struggles. We fight this battle together through the power of the Holy Spirit. We lock arms and we, we, we create an offensive and defensive front against the attacks of Satan because we are engaged in spiritual warfare as a community, not as individuals. You tell me a war that's ever been won by one person. I won't believe it. It doesn't happen. Not outside of Jesus Himself. So we fight this battle together. We fight this battle through the prayer of the community. Praying for one another. Understanding how to pray for our daily battles. Listen, I love to pray for your aunt's cat, but I know that your struggles with sin are greater. And if we're just real with each other, we can acknowledge this is my struggle with sin. This is my difficulty. I need you to be uh, an accountability to me, a prayer warrior to me, so that I know that not only am I praying for God to give me freedom and escape from these things, but I know my church family and my community is praying for me as well. So that also uncomfortable verse, James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. I didn't just make that up. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So literally James is saying, hey, you've just confessed your sins to your brothers and sisters, so now pray about it. The information's out there. What a great way for us to fight the battle with one, or for one another in Christian love and grace is to help them fight in their temptation to sin. So we pray, but we also admonish one another. When, see, when we see temptations to sin arise in the lives of our church family, being silent is a hateful way to love your church. True Christian love is to speak up, helping them stand firm as first fighting against the temptation to sin in their life as you fight for the temptation to sin in your own life. Paul said a very similar in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. It's our job as a church family, as a community, to go above and beyond, not just fighting the battle as a one individual person, but as an army of faithful believers looking out 
for the interests of our others, including ourselves. Even Paul says in Galatians, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So there he is, helping a brother, looking at yourself, making sure you don't fall. It's an offensive and a defensive attack against temptation in a brother's life and in your own life. It's a community effort. And we must not believe the lie of the devil that an individual's sinful habits or temptations to sin is none of our business. That's a way that the church remains individualistic, disjointed, and unhelpful to one another when we believe such lies. You hear me say this a lot, and I'm not going to apologize because it taught me a lot of great lessons. But I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I learned a lot of lessons as a youth pastor. For one, make middle schoolers go to bed early. It's a good lesson. Because if not, they'll just take it and run. Stay up all night long. Another lesson, illustration that I used to use. You put someone in a chair. You have two students stand on each side on the ground. I used to tell my students, it's easier for two students on the ground to pull the person out of the chair than it is for the person in the chair to pull the two students off the ground. It's a great illustration. It's a great lesson of the the delicacy of the temptations that we face from other people. And so James is... Uh, command, or excuse me, Paul's command in Galatians 6 is that as we are looking out for the interests of others, as we are trying to help restore them in a spirit of gentleness, we too must be alert and aware because we can fall into their temptation to sin as we're trying to help them. So the community battle against sin is important, it's necessary, but it's very delicate. We must be alert at all times. So there's a warning, there's the scope of temptation, and finally the victory over temptation. The victory that Paul tells us, the foundation of his passage of this section of Scripture is what God has done for us and what He is continually doing. He starts off doctrinally with the fact that God is faithful. Verse 13, and God is faithful. That's what this whole passage has been about. His faithfulness to Israel, his faithfulness to Adam and Eve, who wasn't even mentioned, weren't even mentioned in this passage. Giving everything that he can give, being faithful as a covenant-keeping God throughout generations. We are the ones that failed. But God is faithful, and in his faithfulness, he has provided a way of victory over temptation. So whatever you are experiencing right now, whatever areas of temptation you are falling into, understand that the victory has already been accomplished in Christ. I already mentioned this before, but it's important to mention it again because it is a reflection of God's faithfulness. How is God faithful? He has provided us a way of escape through His Son. We don't talk enough about the sinlessness of Christ. We talk a lot about His death, His burial, His resurrection, but His sinlessness is key. His sinlessness and His perfection is a key work of redemption because He was obedient to fulfill the law of God in every respect. 
And he was doing it because Adam, our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed to do it. And therefore, Jesus has to step in as a better Adam, as the obedient son, as the one who could accomplish in every way that which all of humanity has failed and will fail to do, Jesus accomplishes it. Jesus acknowledged his own perfection. In John chapter 15, he tells the disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Every way Jesus obeyed the Father. Every way from birth to death, Jesus never sinned. We say that so much in church that we forget how difficult of a task it is to live a life of sinlessness. And yet Jesus, in every way, exuded perfection. Why? Because He was providing a way of escape. We understand this to mean that Jesus was committing zero sin in His life to not just be an example for us, but to be a substitute for us. We needed a sinless sacrifice for an atonement of sin. We also needed a, a, a sinless high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, as Hebrews chapter 4 says, who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. But we understand that Jesus' sinless perfection provided a substitutionary path of escape for us by He being the one who obeyed the law in every way because we cannot. We see that Christ being sinless in this way represents humanity in a way that Adam failed to do. We needed that sinless sacrifice to provide the necessary offering to God to redeem sinners And His victory from death shows us through the power of the resurrection that death and sin are powerless under the strong arm of the Lord. So we have been saved in Christ when we trust in Him. The victory has been won. And yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we understand that we are still engaged in such a battle that we can have victory. Day by day. That God is faithful, as Paul says, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. He's not talking about the escape from the judgment of God. He's talking about the day by day escape that we can face or experience by the power of God through His Spirit. Now, he doesn't mention the word spirit here, but I want you to see Trinitarian theology here. Jesus Christ has provided the way of escape. The Holy Spirit provides the way of escape. Just as Adam told us earlier, we have been sanctified in a judicial system, in a judicial way, before a holy God, and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us day by day, making us holy, conforming us to the image of His Son. This is why the Spirit came. 
We have escaped and we will escape by the Lord Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. A couple passages that prove that point. Romans chapter 8. Paul tells the Romans, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. It's the Spirit that literally helps us mortify the flesh, killing those things in our lives that dishonor the Lord. Turning away from the temptations to sin or reflecting on the sin that is existing in our life and putting it to death. And the greatest challenge for the Christian, the greatest reality is when we acknowledge that we are in sin, the scary thing is how much we like that still. We still enjoy those things. That's still the old man crying out how much we enjoy this sin, and it's hard to get rid of it. And only by the power of the Spirit in us can we actually remove and mortify such a thing. Galatians chapter 5, the well-known passage of the fruits of the Spirit that you learned in Sunday school class. The often ignored or, or verses before that precede this that are not mentioned are the deeds of the flesh. There's not a catchy little song to this. But look at what Galatians chapter 5, look at what Paul says in verses 16 through 25 about our victory through the Spirit. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Notice the spiritual battle there. The Spirit waging war against the flesh, both of those existing in one person in Christ, both in opposition to one another, and the promise so that you do not do the things that you please to do or that you want to do. The inward battle is still there, church. But again, he says, verse 18, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these for which I have forewarned you just as I have forewarned or just of which I, have, I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Church, we can see that in the Spirit of God, He is our way of escape and temptation because He dwells within us. Because He is the way in which we escape by His power, the very power of God. He doesn't just guide us into the Word. He doesn't just seal us 
for the day of salvation when Christ returns. But He is the very source of power to help us to convict us of our sin, to illuminate the words of God, and to empower us to overcome by His strength. So we trust the power of of His Spirit to guide us, convict us, teach us, reveal evil in this world to us, and who empowers us to avoid or overcome temptation. This is why Paul's word to us is simply that God is faithful. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is faithful. One God in three persons, this triune God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. That means you have no reason to be defeated. You have no reason to be defeated. Sin has no great power over you anymore if you are in Christ. You have been redeemed by His Son. Well, let's start at it. You have been chosen by the Father. You have been redeemed by the Son. And you are empowered by the Spirit to overcome. We find rest in the power of God. And yet we are commanded to act. We don't pray every day, God, give me, your, give me your spirit, give me your power to overcome this temptation to sin, and then we walk right into those areas of sin. No, we are called to respond in obedience. This is why I kept verse 14 in this passage, because it's really uh, the gate to the next section of, of Scripture. But he says, therefore, after saying all this, therefore, my beloved, do what? Flee. Idolatry. You have a responsibility. God's going to empower you. You have a responsibility. Don't sit back on your laurels and think God's going to accomplish all these things without calling you to a responsible act of obedience to turn away from sin and the areas of temptation. I think I would have loved and hated to be living during the time of the Puritans. I love it now because I didn't have to hear these things face to face. Listen to this word from Richard Baxter. He says, use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it therefore as a murderer should should be used. Kill it before it kills you, and then though it kills your body, it shall not be able to kill your souls. And though it bring you to the grave as it did your head, it shall not be able to keep you there. If the thoughts of death and the grave and rottenness are not pleasant to you, do not let the thoughts of sin be pleasant. Listen to every temptation to sin as you would listen to the temptation to self-murder. And as you would do it if the devil brought you a knife and tempted you to cut your throat with it, so do it when he offers you the bait to sin. It's pretty powerful. I think Richard Baxter saw the church flirt with sin. I think that Richard Baxter saw the church keep their toes slightly touching the water of, of, uh, of indulgence and sin instead of turning away from it. And friend, we are being called 
to trust in the power of God and to turn away from things that defile the name and the glory of our Maker and our Creator and our Savior. So if you trust in Christ, if He's truly your Savior and Lord, know that sin has been defeated in this great war. And you have been given the tools, the artillery that is needed to defeat it daily in you because of Christ. God has provided a way of escape. Don't look at the door of the ark that Noah built and turn away and think about it for another day. Flee rightly from sin with the power of Christ because He is your way of escape. And friend, if you have never trusted Christ, let me be real real clear. Temptation and sin is your master. Sin rules you. And every indulgence of your flesh is satisfying to you because your heart has not been changed by Christ. You need transformation, not a makeover. Put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and He will empower you to overcome the the sin that enslaves you. But it's only through His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for rich hope that we have in the work of God. Father, the work of your Son upon the cross, the work of your Holy Spirit in our